Hi folks, a quick announcement before the show today. First up, events. We've got three events coming up and they're all in person. I think I said earlier in the year that this was going to be the year of the face-to-face catch-up and it certainly seems to be going that way. So, Thursday the 13th of June. This is for you Brisbane friends. So the Brisbane Take On Board Meetup will be on Thursday the 13th of June. An informal gathering of listeners, program alumni, friends and connections. It's a free event, so come along. Next up, the 18th of July, this is for our Warnable and Great South Coast Take On Board Friends, an event run in conjunction with Leadership Great South Coast and Bernadette Northeast. Governance, from fundamentals to advanced practice. Super early bird tickets for this event close on the 10th of June, so get on it. Then the third event, a bit further down the track, the 22nd of August. This is for our Sydney friends, a Take On Board meetup in Sydney. Details of all of these events are on my website. There's a link to that in the show notes and I would love to see you at one or all of them. Okay, that's it for today. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I am. So I'm on Wurundjeri country, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and any First Nations people we might have here today. Today on the Take On Board podcast, you'll be hearing from Mariana O'Gorman as she takes us through some tips for climate governance, including, firstly the carbon budget and how much of it we have left. Secondly, some small and some big steps you can make in the boardroom to address climate change risk and governance, including setting emission reduction targets and providing transparent carbon disclosures. Thirdly, directors' duties in relation to climate change and how regulators are defining those duties and monitoring enforcement – And fourth and finally, she'll also briefly address the two national policy proposals being taken to the next federal election by the major parties and what impact each may have. Note that this episode was recorded at a Take On Board event in March. So even though she touches on the two national policy proposals being taken to the next election, it hadn't been called at that time. But now, as this goes to air, the federal election in Australia has just been called. So this information might be of even greater relevance. Because it was recorded at an event, you'll not only get to hear from Mariana, you'll also hear from guests as they ask the questions and the responses that Mariana has. Now, first, let me tell you a little bit about our speaker. Mariana O'Gorman works with organisations who want to transition to a cleaner economy. She is a non-executive director with a focus on climate governance and risk. Mariana has represented Australia at international climate negotiations, helped develop climate change education programs at the World Bank, contributed to the design and implementation of a national carbon price, worked on the foundation of 
and later at Australia's Green Bank, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, and has conducted academic research on decarbonisation. Mariana is passionate about the ocean and its protection. Most mornings you'll find her swimming with turtles, rays and the occasional baby shark. Now I should say that on some mornings you might also find Mariana walking up mountains, which is what she and I did together recently when I was on a trip up to Noosa. We did a beautiful hike up Mount Karora, a short and rather challenging mountain track. Can I also add that you're hearing from Mariana today after we met up at one of my Take On Board meetups in Noosa, the place where you should meet up, we caught up again at a Take On Board meetup in Noosa recently, which is where we did the hike together. So I guess it's just a little encouragement that if you hear a Take On Board meetup happening somewhere, please come along. I adore meeting the community. I adore bringing the community together. And hey, you might end up on the podcast or we could end up hiking a mountain somewhere together. Anyway, Enough from me in the introduction. Let's hear from Mariana and all of our guests at this recent Take On Board event. On with the show. Welcome, everybody, to the first Take On Board breakfast of 2022. I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we variously meet. For me, I'm in Thornbury, so the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Uh, I know we have people from all over the place here, from all over Victoria, Australia, and I think even some from not in Australia. So welcoming you all, acknowledging traditional owners. My name's Helia Spenson. I am your host for this evening. Next to me on my screen is Mariana O'Gorman, who is our speaker for today. So thank you for all being here. All we need to know about climate governance. Over to you. Thanks so much, Helia. I'm joining you from the land of the Covey Covey people up in the Sunshine Coast, and thank you for your acknowledgement for the traditional owners, Helia. So the Paris Climate Talks, countries are committed to holding warming at below 2 degrees, preferably at 1.5 degrees. And since then, we've seen lots of countries and governments that have made net zero commitments by 2050. I worry, however, that people think that if we just get to net zero by 2050, things are going to be okay and it doesn't really matter what we do between now and then. And that's just not true because we have this thing called a carbon budget. And I guess I want you to think of a carbon budget uh, like your financial budget. So let's fast forward a few years. Let's say you're 69, you're sitting on two boards, you're earning $100,000 a year, you're living a pretty good life, going on a few holidays, going out, and you're spending $100,000 a year. Next year, however, you need to retire and you've got $500,000 in your superannuation. So think of your carbon budget like that pool of superannuation savings. We've got this kind of finite pool of money that you can use and once it's gone, that's it. We've got this finite budget of emissions and really once that's gone, that anything past that is missing our chance at avoiding catastrophic levels of climate change. So I guess I want to ask, you know, when you retire, do you keep spending at $100,000 a year? Or do you try and cut your spending? Because if you keep spending the way you are, your super is going to be gone in five years. If you cut it in half, maybe you might buy yourself 10 years. You cut it more, you've got a little bit more time. We're currently emitting, like we just don't have a budget. And if we keep doing that, we have less than a decade. In fact, last year, 
I quite shockingly heard from one of Australia's leading climate scientists that if we keep doing what we're doing, we only have two and a half years left. The longer we can make that budget last, the more time we have to get to net zero, which means the more time we have to create more technology and the more time we have to transition our economy. Just like the longer you leave your money sitting in super, you know, the more chance you have that you'll get some good returns and you can make it last a little bit longer. But the GFC might hit and your super might be smashed. It's the same with climate change. We have these things that are called tipping points. So think of tipping points like the Black Summer. Leading up to the Black Summer, we had these really long heat waves. They went all across the country. They lasted for quite a while. They were followed then by devastating fires that burnt 18 million hectares across Australia and they released millions of tonnes of carbon. That's probably going to contribute to more warming. We know more warming contributes to hotter and drier conditions, which are the conditions that create more black summers, more bushfires, which create more emissions. And then things start to spiral. That's your tipping point when climate change starts to spiral out of control. And we're not really sure what happens at that point. So the budget we have today might actually turn out to be a lot smaller than we think it is, depending on how these tipping points play out. So I guess what I want to get through to you today, that 2050 isn't just a magical number that we can just hit and get to net zero and everything will be okay. It really matters what happens between now and then. And if we don't cut emissions now, that really shortens that window in which we have to get to net zero. You've got to think about the Paris Climate Talks. They were seven years ago. So a lot has changed since then. You only have to see the kind of terrible disasters we've had here in Australia. You know, the last seven years have been the hottest on record. And the IPCC has come out with new science since then as well. And it shows that the world's warming a lot faster than we thought it was and that the impacts are being felt a lot faster and they're a lot harder than previous modelling had thought of. That's why I think at the Glasgow Climate Talks last year, we really shifted the focus away from two degrees to 1.5 degrees, because even before we get to 1.5 degrees, those impacts are still pretty devastating. So let's move on to what you as directors can do about this. And I want to run through 10 things that boards can be looking at to future-proof your organisation in a changing climate. And I'll put those 10 things in the chat so that we can run through it together. The first thing is director's duties. I think making sure that everybody in your board understands their duty, their fiduciary duty when it comes to climate change is important and that understands that breaching that duty um, might result in legal action. The duty should be treated pretty seriously because the regulators are treating it really seriously. The Australian Securities and Investment Commission, or ASIC, and the Australian Prudential and Regulation Authority, which is APRA, has issued stern warnings to directors that they will prosecute them if they are in breach of these duties. That's because the ASX, ASIC and APRA, the Federal Treasury and the Reserve Bank really think that these climate risks are a risk to financial stability. So they really want directors to be actively managing it. And on that note, in terms of election commitments, the Labor Party has announced if elected, it will ask the Federal Treasury to model the impacts of climate risk on the economy. That's something that used to be done but um, isn't being done anymore. The Australian Institute of Company Directors is another body that points to directors' duties and they say directors have a responsibility to be setting net zero targets 
consistent with a 1.5 degree pathway. I think the best resource to share with fellow directors to help explain their duties, it's a pretty short one, is the 2021 Hutley opinion. And I'll put a link to that in the chat too. So once directors know what their duties are, the next thing they need to do to discharge it is to be disclosing risks to their organisation. And the task force on climate-related financial disclosures, known as the TCFDs, is the most common tool used by directors to do this. It's used by about 100 of the top ASX 200 companies. And the best way really to understand what a TCFD report is and, and what it requires is just to look up an organisation in your sector that's done one and read it. They're usually pretty short. I think Caitlin and Anthea join us here from Canada and Laurel from America. They're actually making climate change disclosures mandatory there. And it's also happening in the UK and New Zealand. And another election commitment the Labor Party has said is that they intend to make it mandatory here as well if they're elected. But to be able to disclose properly, you need to be able to identify your risks you know, and show how you're managing and monitoring them. So there's really three key risks you need to be thinking about. Firstly, transition risks. So what's the risk that your organisation isn't going to be relevant in a transitioning economy, that customer preferences will change or, or policies will change? The next one is physical risks. So risks that natural disasters will physically impact your organisation. And the final one is that liability risk. So the risk that you might get sued um, if you're not fulfilling your fiduciary duties. I think we have, oh, do we have seven directors of health and hospital boards here with us today? Lisa, Helia, Shan, Kate, Andrea, Rowena and Janice. So, yeah, so quite a number in the health and hospital sectors. So your transition liability risk might be relatively low, but your physical risks might be very high. So take, for example, the Northern New South Wales Health District Board. A few weeks ago, it had three hours to evacuate 55 patients from the Ballina Hospital because of the floods. They didn't have 55 ambulances, so they had to rely on some trucks, some buses, taxis uh, to evacuate most of these patients. They had to get all the equipment out as well, the trolleys, the medicine, ultrasound gear, and they had to set it all up in a school. They only had three doctors because a lot of the doctors and nurses were stuck on roofs. Uh, when they got to the school, they didn't have phone reception, so they couldn't call colleagues to ask for advice. Um, they didn't have IT, so they couldn't look up patient records and they couldn't research medications or conditions. They were really just running on the fly. So as directors of health boards, you need to be identifying these risks and working out ways to mitigate them. And you probably already know that like in medical school, doctors and nurses are always preparing for like a rare mass casualty event. Probably some of that training's come in use during COVID. But as health directors you probably need to be ensuring those climate risks are managed properly and those simulations are being run, not just a, as a rare mass casualty event, but in a simulation where staff is limited, equipment is limited, where transport and food is cut off, where phone lines are down, power is down, internet's down, and scarily with a flood or fire creeping up to the hospital's doorstep. Thankfully, I guess your job as directors isn't all about managing risk. So I want to say this clearly. This transition will bring opportunities for every single board that you serve on if, as directors, you are watching for them. And that's where your board strategy comes in. 
a lot of you I know are working with vulnerable communities. I was speaking with a few of you before. I think Leanne and, and Victoria are working with Australians with disabilities. Marg's working with some older Australians. And Deb's organisation works on women but also covers domestic violence. And unfortunately, natural disasters are really a bit of a breeding ground for abuse and domestic violence. Last week, I heard from Jo Dodds, who's the founder of the Bushfire Survivors Group. She survived the Black Summer. And in the aftermath, she actually said that the first people to appear were, you know, the police, defence force, ministers, mayors. So mainly male leaders coming in to take the reins in the recovery. And she felt the need really to step up to make sure that the recovery efforts weren't just focusing on that physical infrastructure. The recovery needed to be really inclusive and incorporate things like mental health and how we protect vulnerable communities. I think that's true in any natural disaster. When the devastating task of rebuilding finally does start to take place, if we're looking for those opportunities to step up, there will be opportunities to build back better. For example, you know, infrastructure and services that are more inclusive for older Australians and disabled Australians than the infrastructure and services that existed before. But part of your strategy might also include a target. So that brings us to number five. And I want you to think of targets really in a very, very broad term because it might not just be about setting a net zero target. In fact, that might not be the, the target or goal at all. I think we have Caitlin here from the Royal Bank of Canada and their goal is to cut emissions by 70% by 2025, which is great, but banks aren't really a huge source of emissions. However, the people that they lend to are. And that's why the banks actually come up with a target to have 80% of their high emitting customers reporting their emissions and 65% of their customers reporting the carbon reduction plans. So really leveraging their network to look at what they can be doing to influence others to take action. So if you don't have a climate target or a goal, look at setting one and announcing it publicly and the strategy and, and details of how you're going to achieve it. And as I said, it might not be about how you reach net zero. If you do have one, it's probably time to consider updating it if you announced it quite a few years ago. Both the Liberal and the Labor Party are taking net zero by 2050 targets to the next election, but the Labor Party has announced that the Climate Change Authority they'll be using, seeking their advice when it comes to the latest science and reviewing international commitments. Because I think net zero really may be too late. And I think many companies in the private sector are already recognising that. Some of the companies that are already setting, have already set 2040 net zero targets are Fortescue Metals, Anglo-American Coal, ASOS, Macquarie, Deloitte, Iconia, IBM, Aecom, Coca-Cola, Microsoft, Uber, Amazon, Ampol, the Royal Air Force in the UK. Uh, this year, I think we'll see even more companies starting to set net zero by 2035 targets, in part because they're using science-based targets and they update those targets as the science changes, but in part because they just want to stay competitive. And first movers will be even more ambitious than that still. We've got Lisa here from the Neil and Buck Council, Leonora from HSBC, Joan from Arup, Tanya from Great Western Water, all of which are setting net zero targets by 2030. And Dominic and Helen from the University of Melbourne, and they're setting net zero targets by 2025. 
and being climate positive by 2030, which means removing more emissions than the uni produces each year. Setting a target is great, but you really need that right incentive behind it. And that's why we're seeing more boards linking variable compensation to ESG outcomes. Some companies are doing this, um, that are doing this probably are some of the highest emitters because it's really the highest emitters that have the most to lose from going slow and the most to gain from moving really fast. So some of the ones that are already linking the variable compensation include AGL, Ampol, BHP, Bluescope, Origin, Rio, Santos and, and Woodside. Lisa from Glencore is here today, who's also on the board of Sunwater. And if you look at the Glencore variable compensation, 15% of the CEO's bonus is linked to Glencore's climate targets. And by the way, if you're looking for a good example of a TCFD report, the Glencore one is, is pretty comprehensive and quite short. Companies aren't really doing this because they want to be a good corporate citizen. They really are in doing it because they want to ensure that management are making decisions that will help future-proof the organisation. And I think there's, there's really a high cost of carbon incorporated into all businesses, especially those high-emitting ones. And if as directors we pretend that they're not there, then we're doing the boards that we serve on a great disservice. The cost comes in many forms, and some of them are pretty well known, like um, access to finance with most banks pulling away from unsustainable projects, attracting investors that are becoming increasingly active, and the cost of insurance if your business is at risk due to climate change. But there's other costs too. Attraction and uh, retention is a big one. Andrew Charlton, who's the managing director of global consulting firm Accenture, says that companies are facing challenges hiring young employees who don't want to go to a barbecue and say that they work for an unsustainable company. It's also getting harder to get organisations to work with you if you're not serious about ESG. If you put out a tender, say, for engineering or construction work, or you seek advice from law firms, consulting companies, even some PR agencies. Joan, who's here from Iraq, will tell you that many firms like hers, Deloitte, AECOM, Baker McKenzie, Herbert Smith Freehills are turning down work that's not in line with climate change targets. And that's because their employees don't want to be designing, building and promoting projects that aren't helping the planet. Another way that cost of carbon is impacting businesses is attracting and retention of customers who have set climate targets. So businesses might also miss out on premiums that their competitors can charge if their competitors can offer green energy, green steel, green bonds, green buildings, that kind of thing. And there's policy costs that will reward fast movers and penalise businesses that aren't transitioning. Another election commitment that the ALP has announced is that it will adopt a policy that the Grattan Institute and the BCA have put forward, which is to use the coalition's existing safeguard mechanism, which covers 215 of the country's largest emitters, and that they will try and tighten the baselines on that scheme to make it work a little bit more effectively and incentivise emissions reduction. And I think that could be, you know, a policy that could quite an impact on our economy and efforts towards companies decarbonising. So we're seeing Australian boards factor in this shadow cost of carbon that comes in all of these forms that really imposes a cost on businesses that aren't taking ESG seriously. And they're incorporating them into your business investment decisions, your asset valuations and your budgets. 
directors are asking questions of auditors and management about the assumptions behind investments and whether these implicit and explicit costs are really being factored in. I think that brings us to number eight, which is the board skills matrix. And I think most of you would know that ESG skills are coming up more and more on the board skills matrix. So if you don't have someone on your board with those skills, you might want to consider putting it into your succession planning. Um, But it's not all about having that knowledge in one director. You want to make sure that the whole board has a basic level of education too. So each year planning for a board education session that covers the latest trends, risks, opportunities and policies in your sector in relation to climate change with an expert coming in to speak, I think is is really valuable for most boards. That then I think is time to wrap it up um, with number 10, which is collaboration, which Kelly has already done a little bit of so far. I think one of the best things about working in that ESG space is it's a collaborative space because everyone's really wanting to work towards a shared goal. So reach out to other directors, policymakers and industry groups in your sector and swap notes with them where there's opportunities to collaborate on climate change. So it was a little bit of homework at the end of today's session. I'd like each of you to find one participant here today and reach out to them to organise a catch-up. i hand it over to you, Helia. Oh, my God, I knew you were a woman after my own heart in all of that, like so many amazing tips and encouraging people to reach out. So we've got four questions left. The first one, what's the impact of what's happening in Ukraine on zero carbon potential? The person who posted this says they had a meeting with someone in the UK last night and there's been huge pressure to drop zero carbon in the face of the war. What are some of your reflections on that, Mariana? I really don't know the impact of of the war when it comes to, to climate change and the kind of devastating events that are going on there. But I guess the one experience I I can draw from is that I was working in the Prime Minister's office during the global financial crisis. And at that time, there was also a huge push to delay the then emissions trading scheme because of the risk of the global financial crisis. Um, Huge political pressure, uh, which led to the delay. And I think that set our economy up in the long term. Uh, It really damaged our economy and has put us in a much less competitive position than we would have been had we gone through the GFC, performed as strongly as we did, but still looked at other challenges and and threats that were facing our country and and economy and tried to address them at the same time and and not delay this for another year because it will just become a, a bigger and bigger human emergency the longer we delay it. Yeah, become our next complete emergency. All right, and next question is from Nicole Baker, who is on the board of Ceres. Many companies have net zero targets. How many of these rely on renewable electricity and offsets and are not making the necessary transformative decisions? What are your reflections there? Yeah, so I guess there's a bit of a difference between being carbon neutral and setting net zero emissions targets. Carbon neutral really can just, you know, you can keep emitting, you can even increase emissions and and offset those emissions. Net zero really involves companies committing to uh, reduce emissions as much as they possibly can and then only offset what they can't reduce. So 
there would be some companies that are really looking to rely on offsets and renewable energy, I'm sure. There would be a lot of companies that are really trying very, very hard to reduce their emissions. I guess the smart companies would realise that they, they have to do the latter because there's not going to be enough offsets in the world to be able to offset all of our current emissions. So we really need, and that means the prices are going to spike. So you're going to be put in a pretty uncompetitive position if you're going to be relying on offsets to meet your climate targets. Uh, you're also not going to necessarily have the, the products that, that businesses want to buy from you. You're not going to have the green buildings, the, the green steel, the, the green energy, if you're just producing the same old product you've always produced, but doing it in a way where you offset it. Nice. Thank you. All right, and our final question is also from Nicole. We're seeing a lot of big investment shifting to climate frameworks. What trends are you seeing in the investors that are still funding coal, et cetera? Are they shifting? Yes, absolutely. And I think you can see that by look at some of the big emitters that I talked about before. They have some pretty ambitious climate change targets and frameworks and pretty comprehensive governance frameworks because they recognise this is a big risk and they recognise it's a risk because their investors have told them that they need Mm. to recognise it, show how they're managing it. Um, And so you see these, you know, big coal companies setting net zero by 2040 targets. You also see these big mining companies that recognise, hey, as I said before, there is opportunities for every single board in this transition. So those companies that have been doing mining for 100 years have the best skill set to move on to other areas of mineral extraction because there's a lot of raw materials and commodities that we're going to need to fund the transition to build all of the renewable energy that are critical materials and somebody needs to be doing that mining and doing it in a sustainable way. So they're looking for those opportunities and they're moving fast and their investors are, are prompting them to be moving. I was at the um, Institute of Company Directors Governance Summit last week and they, they had a number of people from the big banks. They were saying they will only bank those organisations that at least have a transition plan, that they will be banking gas into the future because they see that as part of the transition, but they absolutely see an exit from coal which was interesting to hear as well. It's it's such a change in that even over the last five years, I think, from yeah. uh, organisations five years ago, I don't think you would have heard the banks saying that. No, the banks know, know that this is a huge financial risk to them and mm. the banks' investors know it's a huge financial risk for them. Yes. Um, so this is, you know, this is in part about helping the planet, but it's really about making sure that the assets that they're financing against are going to be great assets by 2050 and if they're not they're going to be pulling out their money yeah exactly i've just been looking in the background there's a couple of people that have filled in their evaluations already and they say it was insightful engaging and cohesive yeah critical informing and engaging i'll send you some of this afterwards uh it was great to discuss with like-minded people and this person first time all went well urgent action opportunity. So, Mariana, we had a question earlier about some of the resources or experts that organisations can access uh, access in the boardroom to help lift the kind of understanding of people in the boardroom. I think you've thought of one, one expert that might be able to help out here. 
Yeah, when I was asked that question, like any uh, woman, I didn't back myself and uh, say that that's something that I've just started doing and um, I'm really keen to work with, with boards that would like assistance in understanding their risks and where the opportunities might lie in their sector. So if you are interested, please reach out. Excellent. Of course, Mariana's details will be in the show notes. So please reach out to her. I reached out to her because she's an expert in the field and I wanted her to share that incredible wisdom with the Take On Board community and I have no doubt she'll be able to share some of that wisdom in the incredible practical way that you've just heard uh, for your boardroom as well. Reach out to her. Hi there, it's Helia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, You can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.